Welcome. This is the New England Journal of Medicine. I'm Dr. Michael Beerer. This week, February 1st, 2024, we feature articles on an attenuated tetravalent dengue vaccine, skin antisepsis before fracture surgery, N-acetyl-L-leucine in Neiman-Pick disease type C, in vivo CRISPR-Cas9 treatment for hereditary angioedema, and on seeing medicine more as a job than a calling. A review article on cardiac implantable electronic devices, a clinical problem-solving on flipping the switch, and a perspective article on explaining health inequities. Live Attenuated Tetravalent Butantan Dengue Vaccine in Children and Adults by Esper Calas from the Instituto Butantan Sao Paulo, Brazil, and co-authors. Butantan Dengue Vaccine, Butantan DV, is an investigational single-dose live attenuated tetravalent vaccine against dengue disease. Data on its overall efficacy have been needed. In this ongoing Phase three trial in Brazil, 16,235 children and adults were randomly assigned to receive Butantan DV or placebo with stratification according to age. The overall two-year vaccine efficacy was 79.6%, 73.6% among participants with no evidence of previous dengue exposure, and 89.2% among those with a history of exposure. Vaccine efficacy was 80.1% among participants 2 to 6 years of age, 77.8% among those 7 to 17 years of age, and 90% among those 18 to 59 years of age. Efficacy against DENV serotype 1 was 89.5% and against DENV 2 was 69.6%. DENV 3 and DENV 4 were not detected during the follow-up period. Solicited systemic vaccine or placebo-related adverse events within 21 days after injection were more common with Butantan DV than with placebo, 58.3% of participants versus 45.6%. A single dose of Butantan DV prevented symptomatic DENV1 and DENV2, regardless of dengue sero status at baseline, through two years of follow-up. Scott Halstead from Westwood, Massachusetts, writes in an editorial that efficacy trials involving three tetravalent dengue vaccines have been completed, including Dengvaxia, TAC-003, also known as Qdenga, and now Butantan DV. On the basis of protection against dengue virus that was shown during preclinical testing of the analogous TV-003 formulation developed by the National Institutes of Health, it was expected that a single dose of Butantan DV would provide protective immunity against all four dengue virus serotypes. The absence of cases of DENV3 and DENV4 undoubtedly is attributable to the introduction of Zika virus to Brazil in 2015. The number of Zika virus infections exploded to epidemic proportions and was followed in both 2017 and 2018 by an 80% reduction in total dengue cases and deaths. Among the 270 participants who received vaccine or placebo in the current trial by Kalas and colleagues and in whom clinical dengue illnesses developed during the trial, none were severely ill or hospitalized. 
This is in stark contrast to the frequency of severe dengue or hospitalization of vaccinees and controls in clinical trials of Dengvaxia and TAC-003. The World Health Organization's Strategic Advisory Group of Experts on Immunization, SAGE, has recommended that persons nine years of age or older with evidence of at least one previous dengue virus infection receive three doses of Dengvaxia. SAGE is considering recommending that persons 6 to 16 years of age in countries where dengue is highly endemic receive two doses of TAC-003 without restriction. Given the realities of the dimensions of the dengue pandemic in the 20th and 21st centuries, a highly effective one-dose tetravalent vaccine remains in high demand. Butantan DV clinical trials should continue and, if possible, be expanded. Skin antisepsis before surgical fixation of extremity fractures by the Prepit investigators. Studies evaluating surgical site infection have had conflicting results with respect to the use of alcohol solutions containing iodine povacrolex or chlorhexidine gluconate as skin antisepsis before surgery to repair a fractured limb, that is, an extremity fracture. In this cluster-randomized crossover trial at 25 hospitals in the United States and Canada, Hospitals were randomly assigned to use a solution of 0.7% iodine povacrolex in 74% isopropyl alcohol, iodine group, or 2% chlorhexidine gluconate in 70% isopropyl alcohol, chlorhexidine group, as preoperative antisepsis for surgical procedures to repair extremity fractures. Every two months, the hospitals alternated interventions. 6,785 patients with a closed fracture and 1,700 patients with an open fracture were included in the trial. In the closed fracture population, surgical site infection occurred in 2.4% of patients in the iodine group and in 3.3% of patients in the chlorhexidine group. In the open fracture population, surgical site infections occurred in 6.5% of patients in the iodine group and in 7.3% of patients in the chlorhexidine group. The frequencies of unplanned reoperation, one-year outcomes, and serious adverse events were similar in the two groups. Among patients with closed extremity fractures, skin antisepsis with iodine povacrolex in alcohol resulted in fewer surgical site infections than antisepsis with chlorhexidine gluconate in alcohol. In patients with open fractures, the results were similar in the two groups. In an editorial, Selwyn Rogers, Jr. from University of Chicago Medicine and Richard Wenzel from Virginia Commonwealth University, Richmond, write that the most common complication of orthopedic fracture repair is surgical site infection. At the dawn of the germ theory of infection, British surgeon Joseph Lister applied a bactericidal agent, carbolic acid, to the wounds of patients undergoing limb amputation. Postoperative mortality from sepsis fell to 50% of historical levels. Since that time, attempts have been made to further reduce the risk of postoperative infection. In the rigorous and well-designed trial by Sprague and colleagues, the authors concluded that among patients with closed limb fractures, skin antisepsis with iodine povacrolex resulted in fewer surgical site infections than antisepsis with chlorhexidine gluconate 
whereas in patients with open fractures, the result was inconclusive. In the context of the current trial, these authors recognize that the investigators could not evaluate sources of organisms causing surgical site infection other than those occurring on the skin. These non-skin sources include the reservoirs of Staph aureus in the nasopharynx and gut. Skin antisepsis cannot address any silent migration of organisms from these areas to the wound as potential sources of surgical site infection. Furthermore, skin cleansing procedures may have less effect on open fractures in which contamination may have already occurred in the field. Given the substantial morbidity and healthcare costs associated with surgical site infection, we need more innovative trials testing novel approaches to further lower the infection risk. Moreover, a deeper understanding of the individual patient's microbiome may allow for tailored interventions to further decrease the incidence of infection. Lister was able to make a quantum leap to markedly reduce the risk of infection and to lower mortality. We await next-generation innovations to achieve zero surgical site infections. Trial of N-acetyl-L-leucine in Neiman-Pick disease type C by Tatiana Bramova-Ertel from the University Hospital, Bern, Switzerland, and co-authors. Neiman-Pick disease type C is a rare lysosomal storage disorder. These investigators evaluated the safety and efficacy of N-acetyl-L-leucine, NAL, an agent that potentially ameliorates lysosomal and metabolic dysfunction, for the treatment of Neiman-Pick disease type C. Sixty children and adults four years of age or older with genetically confirmed Neiman-Pick disease type C were randomly assigned to receive NAL for 12 weeks followed by placebo for 12 weeks or to receive placebo for 12 weeks followed by NAL for 12 weeks. The primary endpoint was the total score on the scale for the assessment and rating of ataxia, SARA, range 0 to 40 with lower scores indicating better neurologic status. The mean baseline SARA total scores used in the primary analysis were 15.88 before receipt of the first dose of NAL and 15.68 before receipt of the first dose of placebo. The mean change from baseline in the SARA total score was minus 1.97 points after 12 weeks of receiving NAL and minus 0.6 points after 12 weeks of receiving placebo. The results for the secondary endpoints were generally supportive of the findings in the primary analysis, but these were not adjusted for multiple comparisons. The incidence of adverse events was similar with NAL and placebo, and no treatment-related serious adverse events occurred. Among patients with Neiman-Pick disease type C, treatment with NAL for 12 weeks led to better neurologic status than placebo. A longer period is needed to determine the long-term effects of this agent in patients with Neiman-Pick disease type C. In a science behind the study editorial, Cynthia Tift from the National Institutes of Health, Bethesda, Maryland, writes that Neiman-Pick disease type C is a lysosomal storage disorder of cellular cholesterol trafficking caused by biallelic mutations in NPC1 occurring in 95% of patients with the disorder or NPC2 occurring in 5%. 
The phenotypic spectrum of Neiman-Pick disease type C spans rapid, fatal neurologic regression in infancy to late infantile, juvenile, and adult-onset forms characterized by splenomegaly, supranuclear gaze palsy, and neurologic features such as cerebellar ataxia, dysarthria, and progressive dementia. Bermova, Ertl, and colleagues found a significant improvement in the total score on the SARA scale, the primary endpoint, with NAL to treat Neiman-Pick disease type C. Clinical trials of N-acetyl-DL leucine, erasimate of NAL, and N-acetyl-D leucine appear to be largely empirically driven. Its mechanism of action has not been definitively elucidated. N-acetyl-DL leucine has been approved since the 1950s for the treatment of acute vertigo. In that context, it was thought to act by rebalancing hyperpolarized and depolarized medial vestibular neurons, as shown in animal models. Subsequently, Strupp and colleagues reported a short study in which they observed symptomatic improvement in 13 patients with degenerative cerebellar ataxias of differing causes, findings that ignited interest in repurposing the drug. Neuroinflammation in the central nervous system is a hallmark in the pathogenesis of most neurodegenerative lysosomal storage disorders. If neuroinflammation is attenuated by treatment with NOL, Clinical improvement may be seen in many, and perhaps all, neurodegenerative lysosomal storage disorders. As shown in the current study, synergy with other therapies for lysosomal storage disorders would be anticipated. CRISPR-Cas9 in vivo gene editing of KLKB1 for hereditary angioedema by Hilary Longhurst from Auckland City Hospital, New Zealand, and co-authors. Hereditary angioedema is a rare genetic disease that leads to severe and unpredictable swelling attacks. NTLA-2002 is an in vivo gene editing therapy based on CRISPR-Cas9. NTLA-2002 targets the gene encoding calocrean B1 with the goal of lifelong control of angioedema attacks after a single dose. In this phase 1 dose escalation portion of a combined phase 1-2 trial of NTLA-2002 in adults with hereditary angioedema, three patients received 25 mg of NTLA-2002, four received 50 mg, and three received 75 mg. At all dose levels, the most common adverse events were infusion-related reactions and fatigue. No dose-limiting toxic effects, serious adverse events, grade 3 or higher adverse events, or clinically important laboratory findings were observed after the administration of NTLA-2002. Dose-dependent reductions in the total plasma calocrean protein level were observed between baseline and the latest assessment, with a mean percentage change of minus 67% in the 25mg group, minus 84% in the 50mg group, and minus 95% in the 75mg group. The mean percentage change in the number of angioedema attacks per month between baseline and weeks 1 through 16 was minus 91% in the 25mg group, minus 97% in the 50 milligram group, and minus 80% in the 75 milligram group. 
among all the patients, the mean percentage change in the number of angioedema attacks per month from baseline through the latest assessment was minus 95%. In this small study, a single dose of NTLA-2002 led to robust, dose-dependent, and durable reductions in total plasma calocrean levels, and no severe adverse events were observed. In exploratory analyses, reductions in the number of angioedema attacks per month were observed at all dose levels. Cardiac Implantable Electronic Devices A review article by Sana Al-Khatib from Duke University Medical Center, Durham, North Carolina. Cardiac implantable electronic devices, CIEDs, constitute a major breakthrough in the management of heart rhythm disorders. These devices largely include bradycardia pacemakers, biventricular pacemakers, and implantable cardioverter defibrillators, ICDs. In the United States, more than 400,000 CIEDs are implanted every year. The increasing number of patients with a CIED has made it necessary for all clinicians to have a basic understanding of what these devices do, the evidence supporting their use, their possible contribution to the overall clinical presentation, and the consideration of how they should be managed when surgery, a non-surgical procedure, MRI, or radiation therapy is planned. The field of CIEDs has evolved substantially in the past two decades, and evidence is accumulating with respect to which patients benefit most from different methods of pacing and various types of ICD. This review highlights new developments in cardiac implantable electronic devices, with an emphasis on pacemakers, newer modes of pacing, and implantable cardioverter defibrillators. The pivotal randomized trial supporting the recommendations and indications for CIED devices are summarized. Furthermore, the review includes a comparison of transvenous conventional pacemakers with leadless pacemakers, a figure showing how to select the best pacemaker type for a given patient, and summarizes the main differences among the transvenous ICD, the subcutaneous ICD, and the extravascular ICD. Flipping the Switch, a clinical problem-solving by Mary Finta from the Mayo Clinic, Rochester, Minnesota, and co-authors. A 43-year-old woman presented with a one-week history of dysuria and lower abdominal pressure. She had reported similar symptoms several times over the previous two years. Each episode had been diagnosed as a urinary tract infection with confirmation by culture and had resolved after antimicrobial treatment. The patient's medical history included severe obesity that had been treated with a biliopancreatic diversion with a duodenal switch procedure 20 years earlier, nephrolithiasis, and iron deficiency anemia. One year after her index primary care visit, CT urography revealed urothelial thickening and mild dilatation of the left renal collecting system and ureter with non-enhancing debris involving the majority of the left renal calyces. Flexible ureteroscopy revealed pale sloughing mucosa with patchy white plaques throughout both renal pelvic calyceal systems with a greater plaque burden on the left side than on the right side. Seven months later, Percutaneous nephroscopy revealed white, 
pale, sloughing mucosa in the urothelial tract, which was debrided. Histopathological assessment of a urothelial biopsy sample showed extensive keratinizing squamous metaplasia. Squamous metaplasia of the urothelium usually arises from chronic infection or mechanical irritation. The patient was treated with a prolonged course of doxycycline, a repeat ureteroscopy five months after the percutaneous nephroscopy revealed persistent, extensive white plaques. Vitamin A has an essential role in epithelial integrity. The patient's bariatric surgery may have led to vitamin A malabsorption that was insufficiently addressed by her transdermal vitamin patch. On testing, the vitamin A level was less than 10 micrograms per deciliter. On calling from privileged professionals to cogs of capitalism, a Medicine and Society article on medical training today by Lisa Rosenbaum, a national correspondent for the journal. Growing up in Oliver Springs, Tennessee, Austin Witt, who recently finished his family medicine residency at Duke, became keenly aware of the mistreatment of American workers. He watched his coal miner relatives endure occupational hazards, such as mesothelioma, afraid to seek better working conditions in light of past retribution against their co-workers. He observed large corporations coming and going with little concern for the impoverished communities they left behind. Witt, part of the first generation in his family to attend college, chose a different career path from his coal mining ancestors, but he's no more likely than they were to describe his job as a calling. That term, he argues, is weaponized against trainees as a means of subjugation, a way to force them to accept poor working conditions. Though Witt's reasons for rejecting the notion of medicine as calling reflect his particular experiences, he's hardly alone in thinking critically about the role of work in our lives. As society's reckoning with work centrality converges with medicine's corporatization, the sacrifices that once brought physicians' spiritual fulfillment have increasingly been replaced by a sense that we are simply cogs in a wheel. For trainees in particular, whose work may feel distinctly like a job, medicine's demands may conflict with evolving ideas about what makes for a good life. As personal as these considerations may be, they collectively have vast implications for training the next generation and ultimately for patient care. There's an opportunity to harness a generational critique to improve both clinicians' lives and our struggling system, Yet there's also a risk of using our frustrations to justify abdicating our professional responsibilities and damaging our system further. Avoiding that spiral requires understanding what forces outside medicine are reshaping attitudes about work and why medicine is particularly vulnerable to these critiques. Explaining Health Inequities the Enduring Legacy of Historical Biases, a perspective by David Jones from Harvard University, Cambridge, Massachusetts, and co-authors. When the journal was launched in 1812, 
Claims had circulated for centuries about differences in anatomy, physiology, and disease susceptibility between different human populations. Physicians' persistent belief that these differences are innate has long drawn attention away from other possible causes of health inequities. As the journal explores its history and acknowledges its role in voicing and perpetuating racism and discrimination, it must examine how it grappled with the problem of difference. The scope of the potential reckoning is vast. It's impossible to explore all aspects of this issue in a short review. So these authors attempt an illustrative analysis, building on the previous articles in this series. The evolving dynamics of comparative racial analysis can be demonstrated with two diseases that preoccupied 19th century physicians, tuberculosis and insanity. Tuberculosis was a leading cause of death. Insanity, little understood, fueled substantial speculation. Early on, many doctors followed the lead of Benjamin Rush, who argued that insanity and tuberculosis were rare among Africans and indigenous Americans. Rush attributed indigenous Americans' vigor to, quote, their principal occupations, specifically their lives spent in, quote, war, fishing, and hunting. A New York physician in 1847 emphasized diet, quote, Phthisis is almost unknown amongst the Hebrews, the Indian races, and the African tribes which adhere to their primitive diet, similar to that prescribed by the wisdom of the Jewish lawgiver, enjoy the same immunity. An 1893 essay on tuberculosis argued that, quote, nature, when left to herself, is a very wise mother. Early writings praising the health of allegedly primitive Africans and indigenous Americans contrasted them with, quote, civilized white Americans. Doctors also invoked race in examining the origins of insanity. An 1845 excerpt reprinted from the American Journal of Insanity included testimonials from several physicians. A doctor who participated in the Cherokee removals, quote, never saw or heard of a case of insanity among them. Joseph Sinke and other Africans who escaped La Amistad and won freedom from slavery reported that, quote, insanity was very rare in their native country. Health disparities worked in both directions. If something protected indigenous Americans and enslaved Africans against tuberculosis and insanity, something else left them vulnerable to the ill effects of alcohol. Although assertions of innate differences in racial susceptibility to diseases circulated widely, critiques in the journal emerged slowly. Racialized explanations of human differences have far-reaching consequences for medical theory and practice. Physicians' willingness to embrace and promote racist ideas bolstered societal preoccupations with racial hierarchies. Similar dynamics promulgated class bias, sexism, ableism, and other hierarchies. Editors share responsibility for this focus. As the journal gained a national and then international audience after World War II, its editorial decisions had ever wider impact. American medicine has long accepted racialized narratives that propagate social perceptions about white superiority. Deliberate thinking and action are required to resist those narratives. 
We must decide carefully which policies and practices are justified scientifically and ethically as we contend with the nature and meaning of human differences. The journal can act on its commitment to health equity not only by publishing the best, most rigorous research on this important topic, but also by interrogating the racial assumptions and socio-political consequences of everything it publishes. In our images in clinical medicine, an 84-year-old woman presented with a 12-hour history of left lower abdominal pain, nausea, and vomiting. CT of the abdomen revealed a loop of small bowel protruding through the left obturator canal. A diagnosis of an incarcerated obturator hernia was made. Emergency laparotomy was performed, during which a part of the ileum located 80 centimeters from the ileocecal region was found embedded in the left obturator canal. The ileum was manually returned to the peritoneum, and the hernia was repaired. An obturator hernia is a rare type of hernia, most commonly identified in thin, multiparous older women. Owing to the lack of overt findings associated with this pelvic hernia on physical examination, diagnosis may be delayed. In another image, a 66-year-old man was transferred to a hospital after a cardiac arrest. On the morning of the cardiac arrest, he had woken with chest pain, lost consciousness, and regained consciousness after brief cardiopulmonary resuscitation by his family. Coronary angiography revealed 50% stenosis in the middle left anterior descending coronary artery during diastole with complete occlusion during systole and sluggish distal flow. See the video at nejm.org. A diagnosis of myocardial bridging was made. Myocardial bridging is a coronary anomaly in which an epicardial coronary artery takes an intramuscular course. The condition is congenital but may not result in symptoms until later in life. Coronary artery bypass surgery was performed with a saphenous vein graft. This concludes our summary. Let us know what you think about our podcast. Any comments or suggestions may be sent to audio at nejm.org. Thank you for listening.